it was so deeply appealing to people to be able to consider themselves a cowboy that they often didn't care who was necessarily excluded on the other side. Even when they themselves had, had faced that exclusion previously, they were able to take that mythology, reshape it, yes, but still redeploy it as a way to say we belong, but maybe other people don't. Meet Rebecca Schofield, an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Idaho. You don't get more Western, masculine, and American than a cowboy, right? That's even more true for a cowboy who can ride a bucking bronco or an enraged bull at a rodeo. Rebecca wanted to delve into the idea of the cowboy from the point of view of people who may not, at first glance, fit into the archetype. Welcome everyone to The Vandal Theory. My name is Lee Cooper and I'm a science writer here at U of I and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at the University of Idaho. Throughout the third season of the podcast, which we're recording and producing remotely, we're going to talk to U of I researchers about questions they want to answer, problems they want to solve, and what gets them excited about their research. Rebecca and I talked about how female, prisoner, black, and gay rodeo participants challenge and define the cowboy archetype. Rebecca, thank you so much for calling the show today. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about rodeo. Thank you so much for having me. Now, uh, our listeners might notice we do have the pitter-patter of little feet. You are at home uh, with your kids today. Uh, So just letting them know that might happen. So let's talk about your book. Last year, you put out a book called Outriders, Rodeo at the Fringes of the American West. Can you tell me basically what that is and um, how you got interested in it? Yeah, so uh, this is a book that looks at that sort of stereotypical or archetypal cowboy image who we imagine today to be white and masculine, you know, sort of Western American uh, masculinity really at its core. And to think through at least, you know, four groups of people who actively participated while also challenged the sort of cowboy image as the 20th century uh, unfolded. They both, you know, sort of resisted it, but also took on some of its its tenets in order to uh, craft a space of belonging for themselves. So really, I'm looking at at this process that I call um, outriders or people at the, the margins of any activity who helps sort of propel those events and images forward, uh, even as they're resisting some of its meanings. So for me, this was really personal because I'm from Emmett, Idaho, outside Boise, but I did my graduate degrees at Harvard. And that was a place where I felt very alienated and was sort of made to feel like I didn't belong. Yet everywhere I looked in American culture, this sort of cowboy mythology was very persistent uh, and widely deployed in the sort of narrative of American belonging. So I wanted to look at groups of people who had had this mythology weaponized against them and think through how they not only uh, helped craft that image, uh, but also made a space for themselves in the both physical uh, U.S. West and the larger imagined West. It's so interesting because they're trying to ride this line between 
changing themselves to fit in, but also just saying I fit in because of who I am. Yeah, it is really interesting. And so much of what I get at in each of my chapters is that it plays out very differently with each group uh, in terms of how they accept certain parts of this emerging cowboy ideology while also uh, resisting others. So let's dive into our first group. The first part of your book talks about women rodeo riders. Yeah. So my first chapter looks specifically at a woman who went by the name Tilly Baldwin, uh, who was a champion bronc rider in the 1910s and 20s. And she was actually an immigrant. She immigrated from Norway when she was in her teens and ended up as a hairdresser in Brooklyn. And one day she was out at Staten Island, which was still pretty rural, and saw some trick riders and sort of fell in love with that idea and and ran away with the rodeo and and became a, a champion bronc rider at a time when women's bronc riding was still held at uh, most big rodeos. So for me, I really look at the way in which she navigated that immigrant story within the media. She didn't have a diary that I found. She didn't have a memoir. I, I never was able to fully access her sort of interior story. But what I could access was that public story that she helped craft about her role as an immigrant. And sometimes uh, certain uh, newspapers would completely obscure the fact she was an immigrant, while others sort of capitalized it as a public interest story. But ultimately, she really embraced rodeo as a way to prove uh, her belonging in America, that she had become an American through going West and through rodeo. What about, it's got to be hard being a woman on the road with the rodeo. I mean, is it even safe for them? That's a really great question. A lot of this chapter is dedicated to not only uh, how uh, Tilly Baldwin is navigating the sort of uh, media world of rodeo, but also how women at the time uh, needed to navigate the physical uh, dangers that they faced as women in a public sphere at this time, particularly women in, in the public eye performing masculine uh, feats. So I really look at how uh, she was able to do that through changing her name, for instance, to match her rodeo partner so that she could pass as either his wife or his sibling. She was billed as as both in different uh, venues and how uh, women at this time really uh, needed to take proactive steps to remain safe on on the rodeo road. So let's take a look at the next one. Um, You went into some depth about prison rodeos, which I didn't even know were a thing prior to reading this. Yes. So my second chapter looks at the Texas Prison Rodeo, which ran in uh, Huntsville, Texas from uh, 1931 to 1986. And as sort of uh, the uh, standard for prison rodeos. Now, this prison rodeo no longer functions, but many still do. So I really look at it partly because of the limitation of my sources. There weren't many inmate voices that I could access because even even the prison newspaper that I, I read 50 years of, all of that was censored by the prison system. So really, I looked at how prison officials used the spectacle that was prison rodeo to claim 
uh, that they were redeeming men's labor and redeeming men, lost men, through violence, essentially, that this was one of the tactics uh, that the rodeo itself served as a, a performance of agricultural labor that the Texas prison system, which was a, a sort of system of plantations, used uh, range labor and agricultural labor to break bad men, just like these men were performing breaking a bad horse. I sort of look at the ways in which um, rodeo labor and the brutalization of incarcerated bodies mapped onto each other, uh, particularly because prison rodeo was one of the few places in mid-century America where you could watch black cowboys ride and rope directly against white cowboys. So really the way in which race operated in this narrative of incarceration was incredibly important, particularly as the rodeo sort of only amplifies that violence as uh, civil rights are passed, as uh, prisoner rights movements begin to happen, and rodeo officials within the prison just keep making this uh, more of a bloody spectacle every year. Sounds almost gladiatorial. Yes, absolutely. They refer to it and they they really uh, hype it as that. They say again and again and again, you will see things at our rodeo that uh, free world cowboys will not do. And that was true because in, in free world rodeo or mainstream rodeo, cowboys were unionizing. Um, they were forming rodeo associations and telling rodeo producers, no, we won't needlessly or recklessly endanger our bodies. Uh, whereas incarcerated people did not have those rights. Well, so what you were talking about kind of leads into the next section of your book and the fact that you talk about Black rodeo as well. Yeah, so I look at sort of Black Western performance, particularly in Bowlee, Oklahoma, which was the uh, largest all-Black town in America for a very long time, and then also in Oakland, uh, California, where the Black Cowboy Parade still occurs. And I sort of look at these places as both a rural space and an urban space that in the late century sort of embraces the history of the Black Cowboy as a way to argue for civil rights and for Black power and pride uh, and really a place in that narrative of national belonging. Uh, And what I try to do in the chapter is really trace those roots because, of course, anyone who studies um, rodeo or, or the West in general knows that the cowboys who actually worked the ranges, right, who actually drove cattle from Texas to Kansas to to put cattle on the railroad to head east weren't all white yeah they weren't all white of course they weren't that's that's very that's just a historical fact like texas was a slave state all of american uh mounted riding traditions come from the vaquero uh mexican cowboys who in turn learned it from iberian spanish mounted traditions um so of course there were indigenous uh cowboys black cowboys vaqueros working the ranges. But that got pushed out of the narrative by by mid-century, really through rodeo and Jim Crow laws. 
but also through film. So how prominent black rodeoers at the time, but also specific towns or, or cities were using the image of the black cowboy to say, we belong in this country. Of course, that was also embedded with a great deal of violence because a lot of the uh, sort of historical narratives that black activists were holding up essentially was about uh, violence against indigenous people, that they were Buffalo soldiers who helped, uh, you know, subdue the Apache. And so uh, Oklahoma in particular was a great place to sort of set this chapter because I could work through a lot of the overlapping histories of, of Native and Black people in what was Indian Territory and is now Oklahoma. Lastly, uh, you end up focusing, again, we're kind of moving through time, moving uh, closer to where we are now. You focused on gay rodeo, which again, I grew up in Montana and had never heard of. Yeah, so uh, the International Gay Rodeo Association formed in 1985. Now, there was the Reno Gay Rodeo prior to that, which had been organized for 10 years and it was wildly successful in Reno uh, because you could essentially draw from California, right? So uh, you could interest a lot of people who lived in urban places, but maybe who had had to flee to the city in order for that anonymity. And my chapter really focuses on the 1980s and the 1990s, or what I refer to as Reagan's America. And I really look at how uh, the International Gay Rodeo Association essentially participated in a lot of debates about the, the role of gender in the performed American West in a way that were essentially happening everywhere, but not explicitly. So what were the role, for instance, of uh, barrel racers in professional rodeo? Or what was the role of masculinity in the revitalization of the Republican Party uh, in the 1970s and 1980s under Reagan's sort of uh, pseudo cowboy image? But what was really great about it happening in gay rodeo is it's very explicit. You have gay cowboys uh, at times saying, we don't want drag queens. We don't want women. Um, and using the sort of masculinity crisis that occurred in the gay male world in the 1980s as a way to, to say, we belong in America because we are hyper-masculine. And they uh, sort of rejected what's referred to as the assumed effeminacy of homosexuality. But at the same time, other members of IGRA are pushing back and saying uh, and insisting on inclusivity and gender bending. And so what ends up happening is you have a, a, an image that emerges, uh, that emerges that is very white, is very hyper-masculine um, and really embraces the cowboy as a kind of icon for gay hypermasculinity, while also at the same time uh, having the association at least try to commit itself repeatedly to expanding its membership, to making sure that women have places on the board of directors, that women can uh, rope and bronc ride and do everything that men can do still in, in gender segregated categories, but they can do it, which was radical at the time. So we see the way in which the cowboy operates again as a way for 
largely gay men to say, we belong here, but also walk that line where in doing so, uh, they at times cast other people outside of, of the cowboy image. Now, you're still working with this association. Uh, what are some of your current projects? Yeah, so uh, for this project, I started the Gay Rodeo Oral History Project, mainly to see if I had been wrong. I had dived into the archives, and I had some ideas about how this had played out. But I wanted to make sure that people who had experienced it uh, roughly shared those those views and those experiences. And so I was very lucky in 2016, right after I started my job here, to be awarded a University of Idaho seed grant that helped me travel to seven rodeos and collect oral histories uh, with IGRA members over that season. And then I was very lucky to be awarded a Whiting Foundation Fellowship for Public Engagement, which allowed me to fund student researchers to help me collect even more interviews. Uh, Unfortunately for my students, that was cut short by the pandemic. And so they were only able to, to travel to two events, but it was still really valuable. And we were still able to double the collection size uh, despite having that uh, run short. So we have the Voices of Gay Rodeo web exhibit available online that brings together some of these stories. And then I'm also partnering with Dr. Robert Kaisley in the theater department at UI to create a verbatim theater piece from these oral histories that we're hoping to stage both at UI and for IGRA members sometime in the after times, um, hopefully in the spring or uh, at the very latest, uh, fall 2021. Just uh, to kind of end, kind of bring this full circle, uh, what would be, you know, if people do sit down with your book, What would be kind of the take-home message, the one big thing you'd like them to take away? I think I want people to be able to reflect on how these national or even regional mythologies are so powerful. They are what connect us together. They are the stories we tell about who we are and, and who others are and how we welcome other people into those stories. But they're also very dangerous. And I think what the sort of appeal of the cowboy really showed me was that it was so deeply appealing to people to be able to consider themselves a cowboy that they often didn't care who was necessarily excluded on the other side. Even when they themselves had had faced that exclusion previously, they were able to take that mythology reshape it, yes, but still redeploy it as a way to say we belong, but maybe other people don't. And I think that understanding how how those stories are very powerful and how they are very dangerous can help us in our own lives as we na- navigate constantly these claims of, of who is a real American, who is a real Westerner, who is a real woman, who is who is a real anything. Authenticity claims um, and their connection to mythologies are, are very troubling and I think uh, worth our time and attention. All right, Rebecca, thank you so much for calling in today. Thank you so much. If you found the intricacies of Rebecca's Outrider research interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. 
Fish and Wildlife Sciences doctoral candidate Matthew Dunkel, along with researchers from the Yakima and Umatilla tribes, explored the spawning migrations of the Pacific lampreys. The fish move nutrients from oceans to freshwater streams in non-random patterns. Adam Jones, a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences, was awarded a $1 million National Science Foundation grant to study sexual selection and sexual conflict in pipefish and seahorses. He wants to understand the relationship between sexual selection and genetics. U of I researchers conducted a survey of inland Pacific Northwest farmers. They found that there was no relationship between documented changes in temperature and precipitation and the perceptions farmers have of those changes or the farmer's intention to alter their operations. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to The Vandal Theory. You can check out our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory to learn more about Rebecca's work, look through our show notes, and email me with comments. Most importantly, you can subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Rate and review us too and help spread the word about the great research being done at U of I by telling your friends and family about the podcast. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining us.